0: citizenship. What comes to mind if I say that one word? Does it evoke a cultural identity, speaking to who you are as a person? Is it nothing more than a reason to skip the long border queue when you return from holiday? Or perhaps its potential to both improve or impair our lives only came into focus when Brexit created new barriers for both Britons and Europeans. Whether you hold multiple citizenships or just the one, care or don't really have an opinion chances are your life has been shaped in all sorts of ways by the passport you hold. Welcome to LSEIQ. I'm Jess Winterstein and this is the podcast where we ask social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question. In this episode I ask what does it really mean to be a citizen? We're going to travel across continents and through time to take a look at citizenship in all its complexities, uncovering how decisions made by a 19th century West African Gola ruler connect to today's Liberian land ownership laws, why British citizenship became racialized in the decades following the Second World War, legislation that led to the Windrush scandal, which devastated the lives of hundreds of black Britons, and how Bolivian migrants in the present day have struggled to create new lives in Chile. But first, what exactly is citizenship?
1: So there's a contentious debate in both the scholarly as well as the policy literature about citizenship. Legal scholars say citizenship is legal status, as you've mentioned. Sociologists argue that it's norms, it's practices, it's meanings, it's identities. Political scientists say that it's primarily political activity. And then policymakers across the board often call it a bundle of rights and responsibilities. I argue throughout my book that it's all those things,
0: but also more. I'm speaking to Dr. Robtel Nijay Paley, Assistant Professor in International Social and Public Policy at LSE, and author of Development, Dual Citizenship and Its Discontents in Africa, The Political Economy of Belonging to Liberia. Citizenship might warrant a one-line dictionary definition, the legal right to belong to a country, to steal from one. But as activist and scholar Rob Tell explains, it is anything but that simple, encompassing issues of law, economics, politics, and identity.
1: For me, citizenship is about being, it's about doing, it's about relating, it's about identities, practices, and sets of relationships. And I conceptualize this in the book in what I call the Liberian citizenship triad. And this triad has three nodes. On one node is citizenship as identity, and this is largely passive. So it's effectively being born in a particular geographic territory or having ancestry from that particular geographic territory. This is largely an Passive, a passive form of citizenship. It doesn't require you to actually do anything. Another note of citizenship is practice, and this is largely active. So, this is effectively what you do with that identity that makes you a citizen. For instance, how do you contribute your time, your talent, your treasure to? the nation state or to other citizens within that particular nation state is what makes you a citizen then the third node of this liberian citizenship triad is what i call a set of relations so this is an interactive form of citizenship in which citizens interact with citizens but citizens also interact with the state or the government so that's how i conceptualize citizenship as identities practices and sets of relationships that are passive active and interactive
0: respectively so citizenship can be viewed as a matter of one identity, but also two through the prism of what we choose to do as a result of who we are, and three the relationships we have as a result, both with other citizens and the state. The majority of us will have birthright citizenship, affording us rights according to that country, and then there are those with ties to more than one nation, adding an extra dimension of complexity to the subject. It is this issue of dual citizenship that Rob Telney J Paley is focused on. Liberia is just one of seven countries in Africa that currently does not allow citizens to hold dual nationality. Given the widespread acceptance of dual citizenship elsewhere in the continent, I asked Rob Tell why it was such a contentious issue for Liberians.
1: So the contestations around dual citizenship in Liberia are deeply, deeply socioeconomic in nature. So, for instance, domestic and diasporic Liberian actors interpret citizenship as well as dual citizenship differently based on lived experiences, as well as their social locations, which is their socioeconomic background. Now, some domestic Liberians have argued that dual citizenship is a zero-sum game, that it will effectively infringe upon their already very limited access to political, economic, social rights, and that it will reproduce already very entrenched inequalities in the country. Diasporic Liberians, on the other hand, view dual citizenship as a form of strengthening their ties with the country and then also enabling development. So being a facilitator or a conduit of political, economic, social transformation in the country, such that they become political, economic, as well as social actors.
0: So there is a tension between those who fear they have something to lose and those who would only seem to benefit from the ability to hold dual citizenship. To understand more, Rob Tell interviewed Liberians living in the capital cities of Liberia, Sierra Leone, Ghana, the United States, and United Kingdom. What did they tell her about how Liberians at home and abroad view dual citizenship?
1: Now, some Liberians living abroad have expressed a desire for their children born abroad to have the connection to Liberia, and they view dual citizenship or the enactment of dual citizenship as a conduit for that. They've also expressed Um, the desire to own land. Owning land is an entitlement of citizenship in Liberia. And if you're not a citizen, you cannot own land. They've expressed a desire to participate in the political process, to be able to vote for elected officials as well as being able to hold elected official. But on the other hand, what's interesting is that other Liberians living abroad have also said that their children born abroad should not be automatically entitled to citizenship just by virtue of that ancestry. They've also argued that participating in the political process of a country requires that you actually live there, that you have residence there. So you can see this sort of contention amongst even Liberians abroad that they have very heterogeneous perspectives about what the entitlements, what the rights, what the obligations, what the privileges and protections should be for those who live abroad.
2: You interviewed
0: over 200 Liberians in five cities across the world. Um, and I just wanted to ask about those, what those kind of conversations with individuals revealed um, about how they approached the issue.
1: My findings um, based on these life histories of these over 200 Liberians, what I discovered is that the vast majority of the respondents, about 61%, actually endorsed dual citizenship in principle. They viewed dual citizenship as a potential um, development enabler. 15% of my respondent pool supported dual citizenship with reservation. So they argue that there's an important need to insert safeguards such that people don't violate um, Liberian laws. They also talk about the fact that it's important to ensure that dual citizens would be dual citizens don't have the same political rights as those who are resident in the country. So, for instance, They argue that would-be dual citizens should not be entitled to run for the presidency. They should not be entitled to be appointed the Minister of Defense, given the divided loyalties paradigm. About 4% of the respondent pool were actually quite ambivalent about dual citizenship. They didn't reject or support it outrightly. They were a bit more agnostic in their perspective, not on one polar end or the other. But what I found particularly interesting is that 18% of my respondents rejected dual citizenship outright and they did so in such a staunch manner. The vast majority of those who rejected dual citizenship were those who were based in Monrovia, the capital of Liberia.
0: Okay, so out of the 202 Liberians interviewed, 123 were in favor of dual citizenship, 30 approved with some reservations, Nine didn't really take a side, three didn't record a response, and 37 rejected the idea outright. For an idea of why those 37 said no, let's hear a little about a former warlord and a U.S. military pilot.
1: In the book, I talk about something called the Taylor-Corcoran nexus. And this is a nexus that is emblematic of two diasporic transnational actors, Charles Taylor, who was a warlord turned president of Liberia, Um, lived in uh, the United States for a number of years and returned to Liberia to actually work for the government of Liberia at the time in the the mid 1980s. He was accused of mismanaging about a million dollars from the state coffers. He fled back to the United States and was able to come back as a counter-revolutionary and begin a protracted 14-year armed conflict that killed hundreds of thousands of people, displaced hundreds of thousands of people. And people will argue that that is emblematic of the Janus face of Liberian diasporas. On one hand, they help to fuel conflict, but they're also political activists who have tried to end or curb the um, continuation of the armed conflict. Another emblematic um, representation of that Taylor Corcoran nexus is Ellen Corcoran, who is, or who who is Um, a Liberian-born U.S. pilot who came back to the country to work on aviation reforms. And she, too, was accused of siphoning off hundreds of thousands of dollars from the Liberia Aviation um, Agency. She fled back to the United States. She had U.S. citizenship. And the Liberian government has been trying to extradite her back to Liberia for a number of years and hasn't been able to because of the extradition treaty not being strong enough to return Uh, Liberians who are accused of gross mismanagement of funds. Um, So there have been so many cases within the past, I would say, five or six years of Liberians who've returned to the country, who've gotten their hands caught in the national coffers. They have not been prosecuted. Many of them have gone back to their country of settlement. um, And the government has not been able to ensure that they face the full weight of the law.
0: With high-profile incidences like this, we can see why those 37 Liberians rejected the idea of opening up citizenship further. There are such cases where diasporic Liberians have flouted the law for their own gain, and then there is another issue entirely. You may remember that Robtel Nije Paley said that only Liberian citizens are entitled to own land. In a chapter titled Give Me Your Land or I'll Shoot, she explores the first documented conflict over land and land ownership in Liberia. King Zoluduma ruled a region of land which now contains the Liberian capital city, Monrovia. What does his story tell us about this key issue?
1: So there's an uncorroborated account in the colonial archives that King Zoluduma of Cape Mazarado, which is on the coast of pre-settler Liberia in the 1800s, was held at gunpoint in December 1821 when he refused to cede indigenous land to agents of the American Colonization Society, what we term as the ACS. Um, Now the ACS comprised white pseudo abolitionists who were attempting to repatriate free and formerly enslaved blacks back to West Africa during this period. As the story goes, these white agents of the ACS coerced the king into selling land, which would eventually be given to black migrant settlers. Now, some scholars, Liberian scholars particularly, have challenged whether the story is true. So what I do in the book is I qualify the retelling of this story by saying that this was an alleged account between King Zoluduma and the ACS agents. What this alleged encounter reveals is that while Black settlers adopted a free market, almost individualistic approach to land, the indigenous populations that they encountered believed that they were actually the communal custodians of land. Now, one of the most important entitlements of citizenship in Liberia is the ability to own land. And this is largely a result of the country's history of Black settler state formation. While land ownership or private property ownership was a requirement for being considered a citizen, and as a result, really was biased against those indigenous populations for the first 100 years of the country's history, and this is in the early part of Liberia's history, the settlers decided this. It has now, land ownership has now become a right or entitlement of citizenship. So that story, Give Me Your Land or I'll Shoot is the retelling of this first encounter over land and, and land ownership and how it's had a magnifying sort of ripple effect on how we view citizenship and the connection to land ownership in Liberia.
0: So land has been an important facet of Liberian citizenship from the country's foundation, when indigenous populations were allegedly forced to cede land to the new settlers who, steered by the American Colonization Society, arrived with Western ideals of a free market economy. For Liberians then, the subject of citizenship is firmly intertwined with its settler past and birth as an independent African country its laws created to provide at least a framework of legal, political, and economic security to those building the nation. But what happens when this protection fails and those rights are not upheld? The next part of our exploration takes us from Liberia to the UK, a country that allows dual citizenship and yet has a shameful history of reducing the rights of its own citizens along racial lines. Um, And I came here as a British person, a baby in arms, um, I've been here from, since I was three months old, so next year I'll be, I've been here 60 years. I, I, I don't know any other country. At some point it became that I became an illegal, well, deemed illegal in my status in this country. I, be, I became deemed illegal
1: and suffered a lot of stress, dehumanization and humiliation to my being, my sense of purpose. I was treated of all the dignity as a human being.
0: That was Glenda Caesar and Michael Braithwaite, both victims of the UK's Windrush Scandal. The scandal saw the children of Commonwealth migrants wrongly detained, denied their legal rights, and in at least 83 cases, wrongly deported. While it's been framed by the government as an appalling mistake, it's hard to ignore the fact that all those caught up in events were connected to the Windrush generation. Black citizens from the Caribbean whose families had exercised their legal right to migrate and live in the UK in the 1950s. And this is not the first time Britain has cast adrift its citizens. Dr. Ian Sanjay Patel is LSE Fellow in Human Rights. In his book, We're Here Because You Were There, he explores the history of the end of the British Empire and looks at how the country's attempts in the 1960s to block entry to legitimate but non-white citizens redefined British citizenship along racial lines. A history that, he explains, has a personal angle.
3: I always knew that my father's family had struggled to enter the UK. My family has origins in India, but my father's family had actually moved to East Africa, to Kenya. And growing up, I was always aware that there was an entire immigration law that was passed, the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, that made it very hard for my father's family to enter the UK despite the fact that they had full British citizenship. And I was always aware that there was something of a contradiction here, that you had fully fledged British citizens uh, who were being described as immigrants and who had to circumvent an immigration law uh, designed to block their entry, despite the fact that they were British citizens with British passports. And so I always knew that there was more to this story and that actually I always wanted to read a full account of what happened here. And that was the initial motivation for writing the book.
0: In his book, Ian reveals how Britain worked to maintain its influence overseas while guarding its borders through a series of nationality and immigration acts. Legislation that was to alter the relationship between citizen and country and create a two-tiered citizenship system that favoured its white citizens and which paved the way for the Windrush scandal of today. This is not a short or easy saga to digest, but it starts with the 1948 British Nationality Act, brought in by Clement Attlee's government.
2: The Labour Party's great victory shows that the country is ready for a new policy To face new world conditions that he believes that labor has the right policy and also has the men to carry it out
3: after the end of the second world war the british found themselves in a difficult position britain was still very much an empire and was keen to redefine british imperialism in the post-war world however they india had gained independence in 1947 And also the old imperial relationships with uh, the former white dominions, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand, chief among them, had also changed. Those countries had joined the United Nations as separate countries, as sovereign states, rather than within an imperial Commonwealth bloc. And Britain was desperate to, to consolidate Imperial unity in the post-war world and retain a sense that Britain had other Englands overseas in the form of Canada, Australia, New Zealand. And it was also preoccupied with making a transition from empire to Commonwealth. The idea of the Commonwealth was still an Imperial idea It was just the latest stage of the British Empire which allowed for uh, various territories to be self-governing but still connected at various levels to the imperial heartland. And so the 1948 British Nationality Act was a, a constitutional and imperial device designed to link the citizenship regimes of Canada, Australia, New Zealand the former white dominions to Britain, the imperial motherland as it were but also retain countries like India that were now independent within the Commonwealth idea. So the British passed the 1948 British Nationality Act as a constitutional consecration of the new imperial Commonwealth in the post-war world. But what they didn't realise was that the Specific provisions of the 1948 Act would have enormous ramifications for post-war migration. Commonwealth citizens, whether they were in Canada or whether they were in India or places like Jamaica, had full rights of entry and residence in the UK.
0: So when faced with the end of its empire, Britain decided to maintain imperial unity through its subjects in the colonies, legally connecting them to the country with all the protections of those born in the motherland.
3: What's so crucial and interesting about the idea of a citizenship of the UK and colonies is that it means that if you're born in a colony, you have an absolutely identical citizenship to somebody born in, say, London or Leeds. And this is very important to realise. And this idea of citizenship of the UK and colonies persisted throughout the initial post-war decades and was only dismantled under the provisions of the 1981 British Nationality Act. Only then was British citizenship, as we know it today, legally defined. What you have here is a paradox. You have a Britain that was ostensibly ending empire and conceding to anti-colonialism in Africa and African colonies were gaining independence rapidly at the beginning of the 1960s. But at the level of citizenship, British nationality was remaining imperial and Britain refused to dismantle the imperial structures of the 1948 British Nationality Act throughout the 1960s and throughout the 1970s.
0: So it's still all about power power abroad and trying to keep those connections.
3: If if you're asking the question, why did British citizenship unfold in the way that it did in the post-war decades, you're immediately led to questions of of Britain's national identity and Britain's empire in the the post-war period. And what we learn is that there was never an end of empire moment. What happened was that around the time of the end of the Second World War, Britain transitioned from empire to Commonwealth, not as an end of empire, but simply as the latest stage of empire. And we've continued to see Britain define itself in terms of a Commonwealth rather than a nation state. It was, it was increasingly less about retaining formal empire, in the form of crown colonies and protectorates and more increasingly more about cultivating the idea of an imperial commonwealth where many parts of the world would still revolve around British institutions and common law and Britain would steward the values of the post-war world.
0: Those post-war values however did not extend to sustaining the legal right of commonwealth and colonial British citizens a place in Britain unhappy with the number of people migrating to its shores but determined not to relinquish its overseas influence britain enacted more legislation starting with the 1962 commonwealth immigrants act which for the first time restricted free movement of commonwealth citizens to enter the uk
3: london airport the 1st of july 1962 an historic day for the commonwealth as the first of its citizens arrive who do not automatically have free entry into the United Kingdom. An act, variously described as shabby, tragic, or distasteful but necessary, comes into force and Commonwealth citizens queue with aliens. When Clement Attlee's government passed the 1948 act, they had no idea of the waves of post-war migration from the colonies and from the Commonwealth that this would lead to. And as the 1950s wore on, more and more migrants from the Caribbean entered Britain, particularly from Jamaica. And these were citizens of the UK and colonies under the 1948 Act. And so therefore were British citizens moving from one area of the Commonwealth to another. And towards the end of the 1950s, you also had South Asians coming from the Commonwealth states of India and Pakistan, who were also exercising their legal right to migrate and were Commonwealth citizens with full rights of entry and residence in the UK. What Britain decides to do, instead of dismantling imperial citizenship in the 1960s, instead, it decides to pass key pieces of immigration policy and what these ostensibly immigration acts do is that they actually affect the rights of commonwealth citizens and british citizens in other words people who are who are not outsiders necessarily who are not immigrants per se but are actually within british nationality and these immigration policies prevented their rights of entry and residence to the uk So the automatic right of Commonwealth citizens to enter the UK ends in 1962. And then in 1968, the British go one step further and pass an Act that blocks full British citizens from entering the UK from East Africa.
0: Although the 1962 Act already placed stringent restrictions on Commonwealth citizens from entering Britain, With its 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, the country barred the future right of entry, aside from anyone not born there, or with at least one parent or grandparent who had been born there. Why did the government feel its earlier restrictions weren't enough?
3: Well, the 1962 Act was directly aimed at African Caribbean people migrating from the Caribbean from places like Jamaica, Trinidad and Barbados. The reason that Britain felt that it needed to pass a new... Commonwealth Immigrants Act in 1968 was the prospect of thousands of South Asians in East Africa who were living in the post-colonial states of Kenya and Uganda, but who didn't carry the citizenship of those countries for a number of complex reasons. So rather than allowing these people their legal right to exercise their British citizenship, the UK decided to pass a new immigration law blocking their entry. And what they did in that act is essentially racialise British citizenship in quite a stark way and created two tiers of British citizenship, depending on ancestral connection to the territories of of the British Isles. So if you had an immediate ancestor who was born in the British Isles, then you would be allowed to enter the UK if you were a British citizen resident abroad. But if you didn't have such an ancestral connection to the territories of the British Isles, if your ancestral connection was to India, for example, then you wouldn't be able to exercise the fundamental rights of your British citizenship and you were made stateless, in fact, if not in law.
0: What happened to... All these stateless people? Did they just have to stay where they were?
3: The effect of the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act was to make the South Asians resident east, in East Africa with British citizenship stateless. Although they continue to be described as British citizens in law, in reality they were unable to access the irreducible minimum of what constitutes a nationality, the ability to move, and live, and work in the country that you belong to. The South Asians in East Africa who were British citizens, who were now uh, unable to exercise their right to migrate to the UK because of the 1968 Commonwealth Immigrants Act, were in interi- we now in a terribly vulnerable position. They found themselves unable to move to the UK, which was their legal homeland they were facing majoritarian policies in east africa which meant that it was uh, incredibly hard for various legal and political reasons to gain citizenship of kenya or uganda they had an ancestral connection to india but didn't have indian citizenship because dual citizenship was not allowed and they were also unable to access their their legal homeland of Britain, and they were also being accused of various degrees of betrayal on all sides, from East African governments, from India and from Britain.
0: Having created a community of legal British citizens through its Commonwealth, Britain then worked to keep these non-white citizens, many of whom were living in countries undergoing their own political shifts and facing persecution, outside of its borders. Let's circle back to that first definition of citizenship for a minute, the legal right to belong to a country. Now, through no fault of their own, the South Asians in Africa suddenly, and very legally, did not belong. What does such wholesale rejection do to people who until then had always been considered British?
3: The South Asians in East Africa, they were kind of on the fault line between old and new worlds. So you have this bizarre situation where they're saying, we're British, and and Britain saying, no, you're not British you belong to India, and India is saying, no, you don't belong to India, you belong to Britain or to the countries you're resident in, East Africa, and the East African country saying, no, you're British, you're you're Indian, you know, so it's this sort of tripartite rejection.
0: In researching his book, Ian Sanjay Patel drew heavily on archival material, declassified around the year 2000. I asked him what citizenship meant to him and if his view had changed as a result of his findings.
3: I think for me, the, the, the idea of citizenship remains quite a romantic one. Uh, I can't help thinking that it's associated with the political theories of antiquity, even an Aristotelian idea of the relationship between a person and the polis. And clearly, the, the notion of citizenship brings up in our imagination a rich a rich array of rights and also duties. Citizenship is clearly both a legal reality and also a social and political reality. At their most fulsome, theorists of citizenship imagine that when we exercise our citizenship, we embody the social and political unity of the political community. But in reality, this is often a very embattled relationship And in particular, paying attention to legal citizenship, we learn many of the struggles that people face, depending on all sorts of provisions in accessing their citizenship rights.
0: Citizenship is a relationship between two parties, but as Ian's research has shown, it's one with a huge power imbalance. The issue of power, and the way citizenship can impact on those who hold none, is also explored by Dr. Megan Ryburn, a British Academy postdoctoral fellow in the LSE Latin American and Caribbean Centre. Her book, Uncertain Citizenship, explores the experiences of Bolivian migrants in Chile, many of whom have moved for a better life, only to find themselves living again on the edges of society. Where does citizenship fit with their lives?
2: I think that citizenship is one of the most important mechanisms for indicating our belonging in a society at its sort of most basic level, but migration and citizenship together is also something very contradictory, right? It tells us a lot about the exclusions and inclusions, who we consider to be a part of our society, who we consider to be outside of our society. So I suppose that I I find it a very revealing concept and I'm particularly interested in thinking about what citizenship means for people in the everyday, So the contradictions inherent between having formal citizenship status or not, and then the substantive rights that we can actually gain access to, things like healthcare, like education, like decent work, um, social support, those kind of things. So I'm interested in what it means as a status and a piece of paper, but also what it means for people in the everyday. When I started this project, it wasn't necessarily going to be about citizenship. It was about kind of civil society more broadly and migrants in civil society. And then I just found that citizenship just seemed to be at the core of so much that I was talking about once I started to think about citizenship beyond being just a piece of paper. And I suppose what it really revealed to me is just how much race and gender and class impact on our experiences of citizenship. Since the
0: early 1990s, Chile has seen a huge boom in migration, from around 115,000 to over 1.25 million today. For a country with a population of a little under 20 million, that's a massive increase of nearly 1,000%, making the issue of migration a hot topic and adding to the pressures faced by those trying to find their footing in a new land.
2: What issues are migrants over there experiencing If I think about the people who I have worked with in the course of my research, they face multiple exclusions from health services, from education, from all of these kind of things. Um, They might be working under very exploitative labor conditions, um, not have access to some of some of what we might consider as kind of the most basic conditions for inclusion in a society, say living in very poor conditions. Um, And then and this is this is caused by and exacerbated by racism, xenophobia, which also intersects with gender and class very strongly.
0: In her book, Megan writes of a Bolivian couple who migrate to Chile, having been unable to afford to make a life for themselves and their child in Bolivia. Their story is a stark illustration of the fact that for many, citizenship is a set of rights that sound good on paper, but mean little in reality. What can we make of the fact that for so many, citizenship doesn't appear to bring with it much benefit?
2: That's kind of at the heart of, of the issues I, I think about and I think about it in terms of migration and citizenship, but it's not just limited to migration. We can think of people you know people's experiences as citizens of the country on paper they're born as such and but yet they have very restricted to access to the rights that we would expect to go with citizenship. And that's powerfully contingent on social identities around gender, race, class, and so on and so forth. Um, and I guess that it is when we think about citizenship and migration together that that those contradictions are really revealed, and that's what I find really interesting about it as well. You mentioned at the start of my book, I, I kind of give an illustrative case of, of a couple who I worked with, and I talk about how, whilst in Bolivia where they're from, they may have citizenship on paper, but they are excluded uh, economically, particularly, but also from, from some really sort of you know. From from other other things we might consider a right of citizenship, like um, to education, for example. And so, by going to Chile, their hope is that they may be able to improve some of these conditions, um, some of these substantive rights. They, but in fact, for them, at least this this often did not play out to be the case. And in fact, they may face even more precarious um, circumstances because not only can they not access these substantive rights, but this is interconnected with then having a lack of legal status, either as a citizen or somewhere sort of within the the set of migrant statuses that we might think about as being related to citizenship.
0: As with the Commonwealth-born British citizens that Ian Sanjay Patel has spoken of, who found themselves discriminated against on account of their race, The migrants Megan Ryburn has studied have also experienced hardship as a result of their origins. We may all be equal in the eyes of the law, but it's clear that our experiences as citizens of a country are shaped by who we are as individuals. Megan explains.
2: I think one way we can break that down in simple terms, um, and I can give uh, something of a kind of example from my research, is to put it in the simple terms that say, upon moving to Chile, a Bolivian man with a university degree would very likely experience patterns of exclusion that are quite different from those of an indigenous Bolivian woman who hadn't finished secondary school, just to put it in very basic terms. Um, So for example, she might be on the very periphery of legal citizenship in Chile. So she might have a tourist visa, but she's working unauthorized. Um, Whilst of course, she has full legal citizenship in Bolivia, where she doesn't reside. And then in terms of say the political, she might exercise her right to extraterritorial voting in Bolivia, and be part of a collective in Chile that might um, you know, be involved in some social movement or dance, but she can't vote in Chile. Um, and then, in terms of the social citizenship, she may have had better access to healthcare in Bolivia than Chile, but then the economic, she left Bolivia because she couldn't find wage labor there, and she's precariously employed, say, in agriculture in northern Chile. These are all very complex aspects of citizenship that play out across borders, and all of them could change um, depending on both her exercise of agency through everyday practices, so maybe she seeks assistance from a migrant organisation to um, apply for a visa, um, but also more structural factors. So I think if we break it down, that can be quite a good way of thinking about how citizenship plays out in the everyday across borders. Was the issue of citizenship something that mattered to them or was it just something that they
0: were obviously dealing with the day-to-day and it wasn't an issue in and of itself that, that they were focused on?
2: That's a really interesting question because I suppose there are different ways of answering that because in, in some ways citizenship in its, its many facets was absolutely fundamental to how people were experiencing their everyday lives. So whether that was trying to access, uh, you know, kind of scale up the visa ladder and get a different type of visa or negotiating that legal status or whether that was, Uh, trying to access citizenship rights in terms of health, education, employment, and so on and so forth. It was like a fundamental part of people's everyday lives. But then if we think about citizenship, purely as that piece of paper, which says I am a citizen of x country, or I have a passport of this country, then the ways that people related to that were um, very different and often had it quite an emotional component to them. So even in the cases of migrants who'd been in Chile for a really long time and who may have been able to get um, legal full citizenship, it was interesting, their thoughts around it. Some felt that it was something they wanted because it was pragmatic, it was useful. Um, They'd lived there for a long time, they may have started to identify with Chile, others actually really didn't want it because they felt that they had been treated in sort of racist and xenophobic ways in Chile and that for them they didn't want to have that nationality and so they preferred to stay as permanent residents. In the few cases where it would have been possible to get legal Chilean citizenship it was a very emotionally charged issue in different ways. Some some people just saw it as a pragmatic thing and it was useful and that was it and others saw it as very emotionally charged um, and they were only prepared or interested in having Chilean as well as Bolivian citizenship because it was possible to have dual citizenship. Had they had to give up their Bolivian citizenship, they wouldn't have wanted the Chilean one. So I think it's, yeah, and it, it's, it's a very emotional issue, um, yeah, definitely.
0: So, citizenship is very much a personal, as well as a pragmatic issue. A right, a privilege, a question of identity, a calculated transaction. As we've heard, it can be all of these things. For the Liberians, interviewed by Robtel Nije Paley, it meant either the opening up of opportunities or the potential to lose out. For the Commonwealth and colonial British citizens, whose stories have been uncovered by Ian Sanjay Patel, it should have brought security, but ultimately led to exclusion. And for the Bolivian migrants of Megan Ryburn's research, it's revealed as something insecure, not providing enough for them to make a life at home, yet casting them as outsiders as they try to build new lives. So what does it really mean to be a citizen? Tell us what you think using the hashtag LSEIQ. This episode of LSEIQ was produced by Sophie Mallet, Ollie Johnson, James Ratti and me, Jess Winterstein. It was based, in part, on the following research. Development, Dual Citizenship and Its Discontents in Africa The Political Economy of Belonging to Liberia by Robtel Nijay Paley We're Here Because You Were There, Immigration and the End of Empire by Ian Sanjay Patel and Uncertain Citizenship, Everyday Practices of Bolivian Migrants in Chile by Megan Ryburn. For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe, please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review as this makes the podcast easier for new listeners to discover. Join us next time when we ask, why do people believe in conspiracy theories?